Welcome to this week's safety brief. Today we are broadening our scope and have also welcomed the YouTube community to our live. We are excited to continue to grow the audience and the locations that our community can watch us from. And I also believe Mike is also uh, streaming on his Twitter today as well. Yeah, we're testing today, it out. Yeah. Today we dive deep into the synergy between AI and human validation. With our two seasoned professionals in the field, Mike and Matt, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. <clears throat> to begin, let's talk about how AI has transformed cybersecurity. It does a remarkable job in threat detection and response and can be the factor that helps with peace of mind, especially with having the automation in place. Could you share some insights on how AI automation has improved cybersecurity and your experiences? Matt, you want to lead us off? I'm going to let you start on this one. All right. So how automation has improved quality of life. So what I can speak as far as perspective goes is from an engineer's perspective. Um, I, I've worked at, uh, you know, an MSP uh, for quite a long time, uh, deploying tools that uh, openly touted and advertised that they would reduce overhead, that they would mm -hmm. reduce care and feeding. Um, and I guess the first observation would be uh, it is not always the case <laughs> that technology maybe uh, alleviates the time we need to sink into it. You know, I can't I can't tell you how many times I've tried to uh, maybe over engineer something, uh, whether I'm trying to send a message to a coworker or a family member and technology was getting in the way when maybe it was simpler just to call, uh, maybe resort to an archaic form of uh, that method or communication, right? And I'm not saying calling's archaic, but it's interesting how the promise of technology primarily being uh, saving time uh, can sometimes uh, at points uh, maybe backfire, you know? And I think to a degree, any new emerging technology, we're going to see that, you know? So I'm not, not, not over here, you know, sounding the siren on technology's bad or uh, it's not useful, but I think it is something that is going to inform this discussion uh, when it comes to automation, uh, because automation uh, takes a while to dial in and really get uh, groomed in a way that uh, is is functional, you know. And I think you know, for a lot of our partners, we've seen instances where, you know, if they're deploying security tools, uh, for example, it may be quicker. Pardon me maybe quicker to resort to manual deployment methods, uh, surprisingly enough, you know, rather than scripted or rather than over engineer it. And I so I say that to say that there are going to be certain moments where it's OK that automation may not make sense. You know, uh, I think there's going to be a scale perception or there's going to be a, a point where it's beneficial. But specifically, I've seen automation really help out uh, within the scope of, you know, the deployment of security tools. If we're dialing in further to like antivirus running on a Windows computer. Uh, we've seen group policy uh, pushed out by a Windows domain controller or SCCM, you know, for those that were maybe around during that time or with WDS, Windows Deployment Services, right? You pick one golden image and, you know, you can play it with that. But uh, there's certainly use cases where automation makes sense. And I, I think it's going to primarily be found in routine, repeatable tasks that have a very specific scope. Uh, so again, where I've seen it be most beneficial is, again, routine, repeatable tasks that are limited in scope. And so for us, that specifically for our partners looks like 
the deployment of, of endpoint tools uh, or monitoring tools where you need to run an executable, you need to call a certain string or variable or activation key, if you will. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of lot of uh, benefit there uh, within the scope of you know the deployment or the assurance that certain machines, primarily again computers under management, get the tools that they need uh, to be properly monitored or cared for. And um, yeah, it's no different than Microsoft Office. You know, it doesn't have to be limited to security tools. You can automate the deployment of that and again, reduce overhead. Because if your, your on-site engineer from your IT department is running around trying to help people and resolve issues, uh, they have less time to do other things. And I think that's where automation is going to really uh, step into its its limelight is where it's opportunity cost. What could we do with the time we're spending doing something manually that we could automate? I'm going to step into this and look at it from an alternative perspective. So we're looking at automation for how it can help everybody. You touched on something that's really important where you basically mentioned that there is going to be time that is involved. There's going to be configuration. There's going to be everything that needs to be done in order to configure this. Long and short, it's not an easy bake oven. I can't put in terrible batter. I can't turn it to a thing, run away, play with all my dolls or action figures or whatever, come back and have a terrible muffin that's been created for me. It's not like that. You have to factor in that even with automation, there is going to be a level of time that is going to be required. Now, I said I'm going to look at this from a different perspective. Automation from an engineer side, from hacky boy side, I love. It's like, it makes my life substantially easier. Let's talk about it from the executive side, from the CISO side. Let's talk about it from the CFO, CRO side. Everything that you do in any business, I mean, I can expand that. Anything you do in life has a value associated to the time that you are spending on anything. There is a very large formula where it talks about the future value of money and the present value of money. And then you basically take that with the interest rate, um, compounding periods of uh, per year, total number of years, everything else. And it basically tells you how much you are theoretically spending based on the effort that you are putting out. That's what you're going to be looking at when you look at automation. In any enterprise, there's going to be somebody who is bean counting. They're going to be using a formula like that to say whether or not the automation that you are wanting to implement is going to be a cost-efficient savings for the company. As you mentioned, sometimes there are you know, periods where you need to go old school, where automation may not help. Um, let's say you run into a situation where somehow your your network is off. It's taken down. Well, you can sit there and try to find ways to automate it with workarounds, or you can just get on your feet, go and fix the issue with the different machines. One of them is going to be more time-saving. One of them is going to be more cost-saving. Getting on, getting up, walking over, fixing the issue, you're going to save time. You're going to save money. You'd have to figure out ways to get the automation to understand all of the different variables in order to resolve that situation for you, if it's even something that could be resolved with automation in the first place. 
so I'm, I'm looking at it from a little bit different perspective there. I love automation. Mike, you've seen all the stuff that I do with automation. Automation makes my life very, very, very fun. But I also understand that, you know, when you do want to put something new like this in place, A, you're going to have people that are skeptical. They're going to say, is it really going to be worth our time? Is it really going to be worth what we're spending on it? Yep. You have to find the way to justify that. You were talking about the lower false positive rates. You were talking about the low alert fatigue, the lower overhead. If you can find a way to justify that, the technology that you're using, with the automation that's built in, with the learning that's built in, where you can show we usually spend X amount of time per you know hour resolving this issue but without all of these being generated these are all the hours that we're now saving that's a win you're going to be able to get everybody that is you know that, that you need from the finance side on board with that the CISO is probably going to be on board with that because anything that you do that makes the finance people happy is going to make the CISO happy once you get everybody on board, it's easier to adopt that technology. It's easier to, uh, to start building that automation. The money you save over here can be applied over here to do the necessary training of your automation systems. Totally agree. Matt, you specifically calling out the, the how to get the C-level execs involved into the automation technical discussion. I mean, the, the most simple form of automation I can think of is the opportunity cost difference between what does uh, one IT engineer cost to staff mm -hmm. in order to take a phone call from a user who needs a password reset. So we're going to say that's uh, pull a number out of our out of our hat, and that's going to be about thirty thousand dollars a year, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe not, right? What does it cost to stand up a self service password reset portal? You know, substantially so you less. Yeah. So we look at the one time costs of that and then the reoccurring cost saves. Now, please hear me to all my colleagues in the IT space, not advocating for the <laughs> IT engineer to not. But the opportunity cost of what they could spend their time on is far greater of importance than what the one time cost of that portal development is. Will it be difficult? Yes, most certainly. Will it take time? Yes, most certainly. Will it not come out of the gate in its first or second or 12th iteration? Perfect. Yes, absolutely. But when you get it, that's where you start seeing dollar signs return in the way of capital that you can reinvest. And, you know, in a fun household form of automation, you look at Roombas or you look at uh, some form of home automation for cleaning, right? What is the Roomba cost? A lot of money, right? It's more than most vacuums. And so even more when it themselves. catches your dog's tail and the dog chases around the house with it. Attached uh, it costs to it. a lot of money and the dog yeah. can't get another tail back, you know? So exactly. it's like... Um, but the, the reality of that example for home consumers to try and drive it home in a layman's sense of terms is automation is that cost you'll spend up front um, to dial it in. And there'll be an uncomfortable period. The thing has to map your home. The thing has to understand mm -hmm. what's a stair and what's a dog tail and, you know, <laughs> how to not hit the kid with the walker, you know, trying to get around the house. And so but what is the promise of it? Well, it's the return on investment, the return on the time you'd spend cleaning while still maintaining a clean ish or cleaner home, right? And so I think in layman's terms, just to drill it down to a, a usable example, whether it's the C-level looking at a self-service password reset portal in a form of automation that their IT team can focus on more strategic uh, initiatives or the home, 
home care and home cleaning Roomba that can sweep, mop, vacuum, do everything. Is it $1,100? Well, yeah, it's certainly $1,100. But um, it is something Let's take to consider. It a step further. Let's take it a step further. You're talking about the consumer side of things. Let's go there. The consumer side of things, automation has become absolutely inundated. Everything out there says, work with your home link, work with your Alexa, work with your Google. Okay. How's that automation going to be beneficial to you? I never thought this was possible, and I'm going to sound like I'm absolutely insane for saying this, but I kind of want a connected toaster. Hmm. I mean, think about this, okay? Think about this. You could script everything out with runtimes to have your entire morning prepared for you. So now you, you just have a smart home. <laughs> I don't know. There's smart homes, but they're still dumb. I want a smart <laughs> home that is actually smart. I want a smart home that does more than lets me say, Alexa, turn on the refrigerator. Okay, the refrigerator should already be on, but you get my point. It You're talking like Bicentennial like Man that. home things, right? That just like cook the I dinner am. and... I am. Yeah. I want an automated home. I want the ability that I can say to my phone, Alexa, what can I create for dinner? And it has the capability of talking to my devices at my house, figuring out based on the inventory I have in my smart refrigerator. I don't have one. They terrify me. Uh, what exactly is in there that I could put together for a meal? If I don't have something, say I, I tell it I want to I want to cook chicken parmesan. Okay. Say I've got everything, but for some reason I don't have the pasta. It has the capability of saying, okay, you've got all of this, but it can also send me a notification saying I placed an order at Walmart for pickup for X. Yeah. Greetings. The Matthew. level you of are automation. Out of sauce, right? Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. I purchased more for you. <laughs> now let's go a little that bit more nice. realistic. I ordered your sauce for you. Well, <laughs> I know I know Mike has kids. What what do these automations afford you when you're able to script things out? Your kid likes to have a certain music on at night when you're ready to go to bed. Mine has a light that uh, depicts the galaxy. Yep. That's on that I can connect everything to. I can do a voice command when it's time to go to bed and it automatically turns off their bedroom light turns on their light they like to sleep with can adjust everything can do everything that you need can turn off the tv downstairs can turn off their fire tablets i mean you can automate everything to that level yeah that takes steps that you normally would have to put in place before getting upstairs out of the equation you've now gotten all that time back that you can spend reading stories or helping them calm down before going to bed so they can get a good night's sleep so you can fall asleep on the floor next to them for three hours. <laughs> well, going back Opportunity into the topic. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, going back into the topic of uh, the Roomba that you brought up, Mike, um, there's also the form of that need of human validation. There's always going to mm -hmm. need going to be a need for that human touch. <laughs> you know, I personally have a Roomba and I love it because, you know, I have dogs. They you know, create a lot of fur. However, I also have rugs and other decorations. Um, mm -hmm. There's always, you know, a, a plant that's being knocked over. 
a rug that it's getting stuck on. Um, I don't have the fancy one that empties itself and cleans itself. I have to empty it. I have to clean it. So mm-hmm. there's always going to be that touch of that human validation or that human aspect needed in these automations. Like you said, you have that light and everything, but you have to push that command. You have to be mm-hmm. there to be a part of it. It's not going to automatically do it. And if it does, you're always going to want to go and check to make sure that it is being done right. Correct. I believe, yeah. I believe AI is very much needed and beneficial. However, I don't believe it can stand alone. Um, so what are the limitations and challenges that AI faces in the context of cybersecurity, including issues like the false positives that we run into? Dibs. <laughs> you first, brother. Fire away. Uh, so looking at what what AI can do and the shortcomings that it has in that area, we have to remember that when we're talking about AI, we're talking about one of two things. We're talking machine learning or we're talking deep learning. If it's machine learning, it's a human that is preparing the information, feeding the information, designing the data sets, and controlling all of the constraints around that data. Deep learning is a little bit different. You're basically throwing spaghetti at the wall and everything is eaten instead of sticking. And then it figures out what's going on. A lot of voodoo magic. And there you go. Um, It's not voodoo magic. It's a lot of GPU usage to train those models. Um, But you have to remember the main, the one main thing. Why is AI dangerous? It's only as good as the data you're feeding it. If I take a large language model or a deep learning model or a machine learning model and I tell it one plus one is five, two plus two is 47, and I'm giving it wrong information, the right information is not going to match the data sets that I am designing. It's going to be operating on incorrect information. Now, that that also impacts people when they're using things like ChatGPT. ChatGPT takes all of the data that's provided. Let's be honest, some of us are special potatoes. Some of us put information out there that is not correct. Some do it accidentally. Some do it intentionally because they just want to watch the world burn. Now, that information is all taken and used in those future language models for the training. So you now have material that is tainted inadvertently, mind you, sometimes intentionally, that's very few and far between, but it's inadvertently tainted. So now somebody calling on that data could get a response that is incorrect, which means it's up to the human receiving the response to validate that response is accurate. This becomes extremely tough when the person asking the question has no idea the right answer. So they may think it's accurate, but it's not. Right. And then you have information that gets propagated out throughout an environment that is incorrect from the start. It costs more money to fix that and rectify that than it does to go through multiple stages of validation before disseminating. Yeah, I think, Matt, you highlight something that's really important, and that's the the uniqueness of every situation when it applies to cybersecurity. And so, Elizabeth, to your question that you brought up, which is it's it's timely with the Roomba example, because like if if you go to Amazon and you buy a new Roomba, you're going to pay, you know, 
couple hundred dollars, maybe uh, early, you know, low a thousands, right? Depending on what mm-hmm. you can do. Uh, you know, it, it, it mops, it sweeps, it empties itself, and then it gives you a massage. You know, that's the, that's the $2,000 <laughs> one. And so, but, uh, but if you took that and you went and you bought a used Roomba, you know, because Amazon does that. And you can buy like new, new, refreshed. Used. Yeah, exactly. They, they try and, you know, recycle anything that can get a second life out of it. But it was mapped to the home that it was operating in prior. So it gets into your home and it's like it's running into every destroying wall. Things. It's not stopping at the wall. It's not, you know, and again, falling what, down the stairs, making yeah, funny noises as dog it tails and pots and pans and everything, you know, d- cabinets are getting dented and again it's because it was trained on it in tune for a different environment mm-hmm. and i think where we've seen the most most pain uh kind of come forth from our partners that are using a single policy for multiple very quite vastly different environments um and so you know if you have one environment that you're supporting that uses dropbox for example as a, a file share platform that is not mm-hmm. a plug for dropbox i don't i don't recommend it uh, but then another one uses Microsoft OneDrive or Ignite or whatever it is. You're going to whitelist these applications. You're going to allow these applications to run because they're known good, right? They need to be running in that environment for those uh, employees to work. If you leverage a global policy, by the nature of this logic, or uh, over time, as you deploy more, your policy is going to get weaker and weaker because you're going to add more and more whitelists to the point of where uh, if you told your Roomba that, I want you to work in five different houses and have five different layouts and five different places where the sliding door stops and the windows start, whatever. Then it's going to sit and it's never going to move because it thinks, that, you know, it, it can't do anything, right? It's, it's right. going to run into something. And so it becomes almost passive. It provides little to no value that it was originally invested in. So I think the ailment, Elizabeth, I've seen most often is people who leverage automated tools uh, for a, a wide paintbrush use case. Uh, where, you know, it's not specifically tuned to the uh, application it's being used, but it's almost this very generic or out of the box assumption that this automation is going to work everywhere I put it. And that's the way it is. And again, going back to the definition of automation, it is useful for routine, regular tasks. You walk into a fast food joint or a restaurant, they have a kiosk that you can do self-service ordering, or you can go up to the counter. But if someone at the counter is busy making food, and it makes sense. You go to the self-service kiosk, right? Uh, that is it's routine. designed for repeatable and predictable and repeatable. Exactly. And so where I'd see it being different is, uh, again, if that data set, like Matt said, is larger, uh, but it's also trained in a way that's it's not got all the data specific to that use case in, in, incorporated into it. That's where, again, that's why a generic office password reset portal doesn't exist. Office 365 users certainly have it because there's a a routineness to drop them into their instance and customize it from there. That's where their security policy lives. Mm -hmm. But I can't just have like a routine reset my on-premise exchange (laughs) password.com, you know, website, right? Unless I wanted to fish all of the credentials because of that exact case. It needs to be specific. It needs to be tuned specifically to the use case of what server and what user and what uh, environment you're trying to connect to. So, um, so yeah, I think the biggest ailment, like I said, or the downfall of automation is, um, not just, you know, letting it go on its own and not, not, uh, but also not tuning it or not making it specific enough to the application where users, uh, ultimately benefit from it. And I think the byproduct or the consequence of four of, of poor automation implementations is going to be a poor end user experience. 
it could maybe do its job and the automation could work, but the end user experience is, is terrible, right? And so I think that's where it's going to be uh, the most painful if it's not specifically there's, built or uh, specific to that user's need. There's there's something else that you that you slightly touched on, but I think should be elaborated just a little bit more. Using one policy for everything, even if there's automation in play, is extremely dangerous. Now, I'm not going to tell you the end result of what can happen. I will just say that the commingling of allow listing is a terrible, terrible idea. Because if, again, hypothetical, have not seen this, would not acknowledge if I did see it. Um, if you have customer A that has allow listing that you put in for them, their policy is shared by customer B. Customer B does not know that has been put in place and customer B suffers any form of a breach or, or an incident. How much time do you think you're going to spend explaining what happened? What sort of ramifications do you think are going to come from lazy automation? That return on investment now becomes a resume generating event in many instances. Like, I hate to say it, but in large enterprises, when there is an incident, the incident is the is is not the concern of the person that was the fault of the incident because they're already updating their resume. The problem is those above them also probably are going to be updating their resume as that part of that event. So being lax when it comes to automation and taking the easy way out and trying to go as broad as you can, you have to think about that. There's a lot of impl implications and a lot of ramifications that can come from that. It's just not worth it. Put in the time. It's going to reward you with the return when you don't have to deal with incidents, when you don't have to spend as much time overseeing everything. But you have to be willing to put in that time up front. I completely agree. And with what you said about the Roomba, you know, I recently moved and I'm struggling with that issue as of right now with my Roomba not fully vacuuming downstairs because it, it learned off of my previous house. So, I mean, it is a true problem. And it's so funny that you brought that up. And to go over what you said, Matt, um, this is why we never build a policy on a tenant um, off of a previous policy. We always mm -hmm. rebuild from a brand new default policy and tune each environment. Uh, differently everybody AI... should have a baseline policy that yeah. is never that is never touched it is your baseline default yeah when something new comes on board you clone that policy you rename it to what the purpose of it is and you tweak it accordingly but you should right. always have a clean baseline to work from yes i completely agree and i mean it, it just shows a light that, you know, AI struggles with that contextual understanding. And as we stated, it can lead, lead to those false positives or misunderstanding from previous policies or previous learning. Um, so it, it does need that human validation touch and it does need that um, the right learning for the right environment. So my question is, in the event of a cybersecurity incident, how do human analysts collaborate with AI automation systems to investigate, respond, and mitigate threats effectively, especially with having those uh, false positives or you know those environments that may have been over overly tuned? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good one. So again, coming back to the promise of automation is uh, more result with less effort. That is AI effectively. So AI and, and automation kind of uh, two sides of the same coin in some way. But um, you know, the, the analogy I can draw if I'm a SOC analyst looking at events is going to be if I'm on an assembly line and my daily quota of items coming off that assembly line to quality control and check is 200 a day, then I'm going to have a certain level of quality, right? I'm going to have a certain level of what's acceptable to let it go by and then what's acceptable or what's unacceptable rather, and then needs to be pulled off the line. Now, let's say I do a really good job tuning. I leverage the lowest false positive rate security tools in the industry. Um, what am I left with? Well, my 200 a day quota on that assembly line just became 10 in the same length of shift. So what do I get to do? I get to have so much more efficiency and certainty that what I'm checking, number one, is actually looked into and checked. Number two, the attention to detail the time, just the mere time to be able to unpack that incident, follow it from a linear timeline perspective, go straight up and put my Sherlock Holmes hat on and, and investigate and do the detective work. The time you have available just almost quadrupled, if not more. And that's only possible with automation that is tuned and specific along with human validation. And I think that's the assumption there in that, <clears throat> that automation piece is it needs to be tuned in specific. It needs to be tuned. I can't just let a, let a tool go and say, oh, it touts AI, then I just let it go. We've seen that in the Roomba instance, right? Not as applicable to maybe cybersecurity engineers, but for those working from home is like, no, I get it. You know what I mean? But then the specific piece is, as Matt said, is that we can't have this one size fits all policy. It needs to be you go in, you get the suit or the dress tailored to your measurements, to your body type, to your use case in order for it to actually fit. Otherwise, it's noticeably less uh, quality fit. And so, so long as automation is tuned and specific, the human validation piece just becomes that that overarching quality control that I assume everything that's gone through the assembly line has, has been done right, but I need that quality control before it goes off the line, before that event can potentially grow into something that has tangible impact and downtime to the organization. Um, if I'm if I'm left with good automation that's tuned and specific, uh, my job not only became easier, my output, the quality of my work also increases. And so I think that's going to be the sweet spot of why would I not just use automated tools by themselves? We've already mentioned that automated tools by themselves already need to be effective, a level of tuning and specificity, but also they can still be wrong after the tuning and the specific application. And so that's why the human validation piece is so important. And I think we've seen that in instances where chat GPT has been leveraged to generate phishing campaigns, even with ethical guidelines in play, because they can be bypassed by a human that's obviously smarter than a, uh, you know, a large learning model or a large language model. And uh, will they get smarter? Most certainly they'll get smarter. But to Matt's point also, uh, the thing with LLMs is the more people that use them, the more data they're given, and if they're given less intelligent data, they get dumber, they get they're less effective. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of this bell curve with automation and AI, but specific to, again, where is the sweet spot is, as we've kind of discussed and teed up here, 
is the automation and human validation. Your automation must be specific. It must be tuned well. Uh, and I couldn't tell you how many times we've had partners come to us at BlockWorks with the same tools we may leverage, uh, but drastically different assembly line experiences. They're getting far more alerts, far more noise for known good stuff, right? Like the, the stuff they're being notified on is not actionable. It's not genuine bad. Um, and so your false positive, your false negative rate is through the roof. And again, we go back to the beginning of the stream where we talked about, you know, technology can create just as much work as it promises to eliminate. And that's where I see a lot of failed automation implementations is well, I generated this this self-service password portal, but users don't know how to log in. The, the link is very long and verbose. They don't memorize it. They can't bookmark it. You know, it's, again, it's created more work. Now I need to go through and handhold everybody to get them to this portal that I created and spent money on that was supposed to eliminate the need for me to even contact them in the first place. And so specific to our use case, again, leveraging the lowest false positive rate uh, endpoint solutions in the industry, as well as some really, really solid, robust cloud SaaS account monitoring for business email compromise. We get good tools. We then go ahead and tune them specific to the tenant's use case. Every single customer has their own policy, their own workflow. You know, some people in, in marketing need to receive all email. Some people in sales need to receive all email. They have a different policy specific to the rest of the company. And that's why the specificity is important. So you've done your tuning, you've done your specificity. So what is the, the security operation center or those left to care and feed for it with? Uh, a marginally smaller event set that they can be much more highly effective in monitoring and caring and feeding for. No different than if you had door and window sensors on your home, you purchase a home security system and you tuned out your morning routine of you leaving and going to school. As your door opens and closes, you tuned out your evening routine of coming back home from work. Uh, what are you left with? You're left with four or five genuinely valuable alarms, right? Maybe mm -hmm. some Amazon package came to the door. I can see that on my event stream. Uh, something passed by my door, whether it was a large vehicle or whatever it was on the street, genuinely probably a, 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 a noticeable event, right? But I, I can't imagine how many people have security systems at home or a ring doorbell, and it's just on, off, on, off, on, off. You're getting so many alerts and so much fatigue it's because it's not tuned. It's not specific. And so, um, again, that's where I think... The sweet spot is between automation and its use case, as well as the human validation piece and what we get as a result at the end of the day. I completely agree. And also knowing the environment, um, you know, you, you talk about um, security systems. I have an ADT system. So I've have, I have cameras, I have the sensors. And um, at first we wanted the um, motion sensors, but we have three dogs. So, you know, the person who came to come set it up stated, Hey, you know, you have three dogs. I don't want you guys to be getting pinged with those notifications. Someone's here, someone's there uh, when you're upstairs um, and you don't know that your dogs are downstairs. So it is important to know the environment. It's important to have different things for different environments, which is something that BlockWorks, you know, is really good at. Uh, we have an outline specific approach for all of the onboardings. Um, and this leads to a less rate of false positives due to um, this approach allowing a learning period or audit for each environment. So how does the process of training AI modules with human feedback contribute to improving the accuracy and adaptability of cybersecurity systems? And can you provide examples such as reporting something as misclassified or impl implementing an allow list or, or block list and so on and so forth? 
I'm just waiting for Mike to, to step so up. The use cases I can think of specifically, because again, actual use cases, real-time stories are going to be twofold. Number one, on endpoint security. I'll speak to that, and then I'll speak to email security. So endpoint security, this is, again, a Windows device, a Mac OS device, uh, maybe even a Linux device, um, getting some form of antivirus and an EDR solution to, to harm, harmonize together and you know increase the uh, certainty around prevention. Uh, we have seen specifically where partners that have come to us with the same tools we've leveraged with high efficacy, uh, but with eight to 12 times the event per second or event per hour volume, just because of the amount mm -hmm. of tuning that is needed. Again, just as we talked about the self-service portal, it takes time. It takes time. And I think that tuning is really not factored in to a lot of teams' adoption of new tools. Uh, there is a burn-in period. And I think every IT administrator and, and director is going to say, well, yeah, I know there's a burn-in period, right? There's going to be, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I think it's a, it's a larger number of hours than maybe they anticipate, candidly. And so, um, because again, environments change. What happens when QuickBooks updates from 2019 to 2023 or whatever the version is, right? Well, guess what? Your environment just changed. That's a new file hash. That's a new script and a new application altogether. And so what I've seen specifically to endpoint is um, high success in... Uh, really good automated tools, but also that tuning piece that's being applied on it. I think per customer that we onboard uh, with our partner base, uh, looking at anywhere between six to eight hours of tuning just for that environment alone. Uh -huh. And that's again, it's it, that's what it takes. It's and that's assuming an average event per second count, right? Now let's go over to the email side. So email's fun. Uh, it's been a rapidly evolving kind of threat landscape since 2020. Um, and, you know, I think we've seen a lot of instances where um, trusted contacts can also be uh, malicious delivery methods, where historically it was, you know, I'm, I'm Matt's long lost cousin from Nigeria or Greece or whatever, and I have an inheritance that I'd love to give you. So I'm emailing you to inform you that that sweet Cadillac you've been eyeing for a long time is in your future, brother. Just click here, enter in your username and password, or your, or even worse, your bank account number and your routing number, so I can get you your your coin, right? Um, and people fall for this. People fall for they this. Do. Why? Uh, number one, I think uh, overall people are in despair, so I think like they're more susceptible to these pressure plate kind of moments. Uh, and then number two. Uh, you know, it's kind of the old adage. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And it's. So, I think it comes down to naivete, honestly. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. But I, I mean, think again, I think naivety increases as the pressure plate is pushed, right? It so does. like we've we've had instances where, um, you know, uh, people have masqueraded themselves as HR departments, mm -hmm. uh, and like the number one phishing email that was ever opened, like a subject line that was used in 2020 and 2021. Uh, was the subject line updated workplace mask policy yep and you you had the most robustly mature end user who was savvy to email phishing campaigns and the most uh maybe unfamiliar or under under educated uh individual open it all the same why because the pressure plate was so susceptible that the uh suspicion level maybe was exponentially diminished so bringing it back to automation within the scope of email, we've had a lot of success with looking at not just the sender uh, email address or the relationship between the sender and the recipient, 
um, but also the the contents of the email, not just the body grammar wise, but we're looking at attachments. We're looking at links. We're looking at domain reputation, unpacking, you know, hey, if this is a, a FedEx shipping label dot PDF or whatever in your your mailbox and you have an, an email and you open it and there's a link that says click here to get your shipping label or we're unpacking where that link goes. You know, is it a redirect? Is it actually a FedEx uh, link? You know, things like that. Hey, USPPS is not a valid place to go. Yeah, yeah. USPS. No, people get creative with these domains, yeah. right? Because anybody can go to Namecheap or GoDaddy and buy a domain. Okay. And, so it's even yeah. easier. Uh, all you need to do, and I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying this is how simple it is. Uh, the Windows keyboard has the ability to put different languages in place. Or you could just go online and search for variations of the letter S. All you need yeah. to do is find one that is close enough to the standard U.S. looking letter S and replace that in your domain. You now have something that looks like USPS. Yes. It's not USPS. That's real. Make yeah, the, the A. Uh, make cool. everything look there. And yeah, the A there, there is the, the A is, the easy, is one of the easiest ones, actually. Yeah. Uh, so I, w- I want to touch on something that you were you were talking about that email updated mask protocol. That was something that I talked about back when COVID first started as basically playing on your fears. This is not an uncommon thing with automation. It's going to get more and more prevalent with the, the advent of AI. You now have people that are oversharing. You and I had a very wonderful time learning from somebody down in Louisiana about what you say can royally screw you over. And I I left that presentation saying, I never want to open my mouth again. It was that impactful. But you have people that are oversharing things. They're oversharing pictures of their kids on social media. They're oversharing everything they do on social media. Everything they post, oh, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be, you know, around this place. All right. What's the drawback of that with artificial intelligence? You now have a plethora of information that you can pull from. You now know their speech, their mannerisms. You know what they like, what they don't like. Even more, you'd have pictures of them. You can take those pictures. You can turn them into a deep fake. You can, and this is this is what will really freak you out, you can take the pictures of a child and you can leverage artificial intelligence to age that picture. You then have something that you can use to scare somebody, to strike fear into them, to get them to do what you want them to do. This is where human validation has to come in. Somebody sends you something saying, and this has actually happened. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Deepfake technology took text, put it into the voice of the CEO of a company. The CEO of the company allegedly called their executive assistant and told them, we need to make a, a payment to this person right now, or a deal is going to not go through sounded exactly like them they didn't have any protocols in place to validate they wrote the check what are they going to do when they play that 
to you know any any authority and say i didn't authorize this dude it's your voice like how do you refute that a simple check would have come into play with human validation pick up the phone yep. call the person in question are you requesting that i do this if not well then don't do it yep. if they are you've done the validation you know that it's legitimate that's just, the frightening fact of AI. That's what's capable. I think one thing to keep in mind is, is it something that would usually happen? Is that something that, you know, is not an anomaly? Is it something that um, is usual in your day-to-day -day work? If it is, obviously, it's, it's going to make it a little bit harder to use your brain and double check that <laughs> so i mean there are some times where we get alerts and we think mm -hmm. that it's you know a false positive and sometimes it's not so it, you need that time you need that validation uh to investigate and actually understand what's going on what are you about to do um, and so on i think it, it's evident that ai automation plays a crucial role in the realm of cybersecurity providing solutions for a range of challenges. However, it's still needing that human validation, no matter what aspect you look at it. If it's, you know, your password changer, if it's the Roomba, if it's any of these home, you know, items that you, you're wishing for, Matt, it's needed. So for now, I don't think we have to fear of AI taking over our positions, thankfully. <laughs> so, well, not that yet. concludes. Give yeah, not yet. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that concludes another episode of the Safety Brief. A special thanks to our conversation holders and experts, uh, Matt and Mike, for joining us and you know holding that conversation and bringing uh, those amazing responses in today. As usual, keep the curiosity alive and re remain vigilant in the ever-changing landscape of cybersecurity. And thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you.